It's hard to get 100% agreement on any definitive statement about the human condition. But most of us could rally around this one. All humans have a backbone. Me, you, my Uncle Raj. Each of us has in the middle of our spine that collection of little disks of bone lined up carefully one by one, separated from one another with a thin cushion of cartilage. Even though I'll never see my own backbone, I know without a doubt that it's there. The possession of a backbone isn't unique to us. Kittens have them, ducks have backbones, garter snakes, and labradoodles. Out of all the species of living things that exist here on Earth, about 69,000 of us have backbones. Science lumps us all together in a giant group called vertebrates. And even though some of us vertebrates have hooves and gallop across meadows looking noble and tossing our heads and waving our silky manes around, and others of us live in muddy ponds that are more like puddles, to be honest, and we couldn't gallop if our lives depended upon it, we vertebrates are a lot more alike than you'd think. And weirdly, when we vertebrates are really small, as in just barely an embryo, we look so much like one another, you wouldn't believe it. You'd think we were twins. The embryos aren't identical, but the checklist of our similarities is a very long one. And if you were to just, like, glance at a vertebrate embryo under a microscope, I don't know why you would exactly, but if you did, you really would not know if what you were seeing was a salamander, a labradoodle, or the next president of the United States. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Burdell. On today's show, we're going to be talking about fish. We're descended from fish, you know, from way back when. In fact, so are reptiles and birds and amphibians. All vertebrate species share a common ancestor, and that ancestor was, without a doubt, no special research needed from Ancestry.com, we know that ancient ancestor was a fish. And fish is a subject near and dear to the heart of today's guest. I'm Melina Hale. I'm a scientist, and I study how animals move and how they control movements with their brains. Melina does this by studying the brains of fish, and she does it in a really cool way that I'm going to let her tell you about. But at The Shape of the World, part of what we want to know about the scientists we talk with is, who are they as people, and how did they get situated in such a way that they can make important scientific discoveries? I'm a neurobiologist, a biomechanist, and also an administrator at the University of Chicago. What does your lab look like? Well, when I go in in the morning, my lab is all the way on the tippy top of the building on the fourth floor. So it feels like a little bit like being in an attic. Usually I'll take the stairs because we have a very old elevator that breaks <laughs> quite a lot. And actually, that was the first elevator at the University of Chicago, I've been told. And interestingly, it's shaped like a trolley that would hold a cadaver because <gasps> this is the original anatomy building where medical students were taught. And so they had to put in the elevator to get bodies up from the basement to the second floor where the lectures <laughs> were held. So it's a bit of an eerie feeling when you're trapped in an elevator that's the shape of a cadaver. My lab is the historic campus at the University of Chicago. These very old buildings with gargoyles and lots of interesting flourishes. Ours was actually one of the first buildings on campus. Basically, you walk into my lab and it's one big lab room with bench space and people working on long slate benches. 
There's some microscopes set up, so you'd see people looking through microscopes at tiny little things. We also have some molecular equipment, so people sort of pipetting, transferring liquids from one vial to another. My office is actually within the lab, so if you went straight ahead from the door, you'd run into my office. We also have several microscope rooms and for bigger microscopes, and they're important because we need to be able to close the doors and have absolute darkness in these rooms. We do a lot of research that involves looking at fluorescent markers that are in cells or in brains of small animals. And to be able to see that fluorescent signal, it helps to have a very, very dark environment. Let's talk about fish. So fish are a central part of your research and what you've been studying. Before you tell me what you're studying exactly, can you tell me how you found your way to fish as a subject? I didn't start off working in fish. I actually started working in primates. I was an undergraduate at um, Duke University and had actually gone to Duke as an undergraduate because of their primate center. I was really interested in animal behavior, and in particular, primate behavior. Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey and other primatologists were big and doing really interesting things at the time, and I was inspired by them. My questions became more and more mechanistic, not so much looking at how animals were interacting um, with each other or with their environment, but I really started asking more questions of how are they doing that? How are they moving? Why are they moving the ways they do? How are their bodies working? So instead of asking questions of what occur between animals or how their behavior is affected by changes in their environment, you were starting to want to know what was going on inside the animals, what the mechanics were that whatever it was that made them tick. Primates aren't a great system to do that kind of work in, right? Especially the ones I was looking at, which are lemurs that are rare or endangered. You can't experiment with them the way you can with other animals, and they're big, complex animals as well. When we do studies, it's good to have a big sample size because mm -hmm. one individual might do something very different from another. Just like humans have, we all have our unique sort of quirks in how we move. Animals also vary from one individual to the next. And oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have even thought of that, but that I can see where yeah. you'd want something that's easier to have a lot of. Yeah. So with by using fish, they're still a vertebrate. So fish, their brains have something in common even with human brains since we're vertebrates too? Absolutely. Yep. Especially in the hindbrain. So this is the back part of the brain. It's sometimes called the primitive brain. It has a lot of the neural circuits that control really basic functions like vomiting or aspects of reflexive movements, auditory control, things like this. So a lot of basic circuits are in the hindbrain. So I know that you have been studying touch in fish. Can you describe a little bit about your interest in that and what you're learning? We are. We're studying touch in fish right now. It was a big change in what my lab does. So for decades, I had studied how animals are moving their limbs to generate force. So for us, for example, that would be how are we using our legs to walk across a floor? How are we pushing off? What is our foot doing? How is our knee bending relative to our hip? But we weren't doing this in humans. We were asking those same sorts of questions in fish swimming, which again has similarities in terms of control, but a very different system. But we were asking similar types of questions. How are 
the left and right limbs coordinated and controlled? How are they moving relative to the environment and to each other? In some of the videos that I watched of your work, it shows how the fish moves in relation to being startled by a physical touch. There's even one that has like your hand reaching in there and <laughs> touching the yeah. fish and the fish moving away and some interesting diagrams on on how they move. What was it that you hoped to learn by startling, by scaring those little poor fish? Oh. Right? <laughs> Well, if you think about it, startle behavior is got to be one of the most important behaviors animals do. Right, right. It, it seems like that would be almost the first thing you would learn as an animal. Absolutely. And you don't even learn it. It's built in. It's baked into other circuits. It's not a reflex, but it's close to it. That's fascinating. I guess I'd never really thought to isolate that idea of what does it take to be startled and how do we respond and how do other animals respond, but it's such a basic question. It is. And evolutionarily, it's a really interesting question because we've had to be able to startle and escape from predators or other types of threatening stimuli through the whole history of evolutionary time and vertebrates at least and other animals as well. In fishes, and there are 30,000 species of fishes, something like that, as well as oh, wow. in a, a lot of um, amphibians, particularly ones in aquatic environments, that behavior can be uh, initiated by two cells in the brain. There are two neurons, two nerve cells that are located in this back part of the brain called the hindbrain. And they have these long tendrils that extend all the way down the spinal cord. And if you stimulate one of those cells just briefly, so they fire one time, very short activation, you can elicit this whole startle behavior in these animals. Two single cells that are even just creating the movement of the whole body and this really critical function. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, one is on the left and one is on the right. So if you stimulate the one on the right, the animal will turn to the left. When we stroll through our environment, we want to move forward in an uninterrupted flow. And yet we also want to be able to respond instantaneously if there's a threat. That is what the startle response is for. For those of us land mammals, it might be triggered by the loud noise of a rock rolling down a hill, or by the quiet sound of a leaf crunching under the paw of a tiger. Even though those sounds might not be anything at all, not a rock, not a tiger, you can see why our ancestors evolved the startle response. If they hadn't possessed those neurons Melina's talking about, the ones that help us respond quickly, we might not be here now. To learn all of this, you've been using the larvae of a species called zebrafish. What is a zebrafish? They've got these beautiful stripes along their side, dark stripes on a light background, gives them the zebra sort of effect. Zebrafish are common pet fish. A lot of people have probably seen them in pet stores. They're very easy to keep. You'll often see them together in a tank in a pet store. And actually for our work and for what people do with zebrafish, that's one of the key features of them, is we can keep them together in groups. They like each other, they get along. They're small, which also makes them easy to keep. I can see where it's helpful to have research subjects be a type of animal that's hardy. You and your team want to focus on the science and not be struggling to keep something alive that's very idiosyncratic and demanding or very scarce. 
we don't study them because they're particularly interesting as fish. In fact, we look at zebrafish actually not at all because of the adult or what the adult does, except for the fact that they can live together well and they breed very easily in the lab. The reason that we study zebrafish is because of their use as a genetic model organism and because the larvae are transparent. And because the larvae are transparent, we can look into their spinal cords and look into their brains in the whole live intact animal. So you mean you literally can see what's going on inside their brain just through their skin? Yes. Fluorescent proteins that respond to calcium in the cells in their brain. So when a nerve cell is active in the brain, there's movement of calcium into and out of areas of the cell, and that'll cause these fluorescent markers to light up. So we can watch the brain, regions of the brain, basically lighting up and getting brighter as the animal is thinking. That blows my mind. I would say, you know, what has really gotten me in some ways where I am in terms of this research is that when I was a postdoc and got into these dark rooms and started looking at these cells, I just fell in love with it. Being in this pitch black and you have this tiny fish, these larvae are, you know, millimeters long. So hard to even see if you look at them in a in a bowl or an aquarium, and you put them on this huge microscope, and all of a sudden you see these neurons that are causing startles or other types of behaviors lighting up in their brain. And you can touch the little animal and watch different neurons light up. That's and fascinating that, to think that you're actually seeing a brain work. Yeah, you're seeing it work, and it's beautiful because all these fluorescent markers, and we use different colors of markers for different types of cells that we're interested in. And the brain and spinal cord itself has just a beautiful organization to it. I'm not an artist at all, but um, I just find that part of the work, the experimentation, so compelling and so exciting. In some cases, you know, you're seeing part of the brain, a nerve cell in the brain that no one's ever identified before. It's a new thing that's never been described before. It's sort of like discovery in the deep oceans or in space, but instead in these tiny little animals. You've discovered new nerve cells, new neurons that we didn't know about before. A lot of other scientists are using your data in their research studies and benefiting from your having done this work. What can you tell us about conversations you're having about future insights and applications of this finding for other vertebrates and for us humans? Recent work in my lab that is focused on touch sensation and how the fish sense their mechanical environment was actually funded by the Navy. So the Navy, of course, builds submarines and also autonomous undersea vehicles for monitoring and other functions. And they wanted to actually use fish as inspiration for the design of some of their instrumentation. And they've got lots of wonderful roboticists and in many different universities who work on fish robots. What really hadn't been done when we got involved in this project is that integration of the movement of these robots with what they could be sensing from the environment. So if we take out mechanosensation from a fish and try to get it to swim, its movements are weird. It's using that sensory feedback from the fluid flowing around its fins, from the sense of its fins bending or its body bending. And it's using that to help to modulate or change how it's moving. And the robots weren't doing anything like that. 
And so we got involved in a project with the Navy to understand how these fish sense and then to actually work with engineers and other biomechanists to build that sensation into these robots. Would you call that an example of form of design of biomimicry? Are they imitating things that they're found in nature to create these machines? Yeah, we generally call it bio-inspired design. Bio-inspired design. We're not necessarily mimicking, but we're trying to figure out what's important to the fish and then a way to get that same information into the robotic design. To me, it's just a revelation even to think about the fins being there sending signals to the the brain. Even that idea for me is a new idea. Yeah, you know, it was for us too. And I had studied fish swimming for a very long time. It just hadn't really been in anyone's mind in terms of swimming. But when you think about how we use our own limbs, now to me it feels like, of course, it has to be this way. For example, we use our hands and our arms all the time. And we couldn't do that if we didn't have sensors in them. So, you know, we can close our eyes and still touch our nose with the tip of our finger. How are we doing that? We're not watching our arm moving. Right. The only way we can do that is because we have sensors, mechanical sensors in our arm that's telling our brain where our hand and our arm are in space and how they're moving. Right. Or if it's dark out and it's icy and you can't perceive the ice, but your feet perceive that they're in an unstable position, they're going to send that signal to the brain. Absolutely. And change your gait to adjust to a slippery condition. It takes all types of intelligence, and every part of our body has its own wisdom. Melina's work proves that in a matter-of-fact, specific way. Our conscious minds aren't the only part of our body that communicates. They don't fire off signals that are meekly obeyed by other parts of our body. Sometimes it's the other way around. Melina's work helps us understand that the organization of our bodies and our responses to changing conditions is a collaborative enterprise. Melina, you and I have children around the same age. As a mother and a biologist, Did you observe things in your children in a different way, do you think, than what those of us who aren't biologists, like, did you see things? Because to some degree, Uh, you you know, suddenly you have these little animals in your house. Yeah, yes, (laughs) we did, especially when they're young and their nervous systems and bodies are still forming. Um, It's just fascinating to watch the changes and how they're able to move. Their locomotor gates going from crawling to walking, watching that and associating it with what might be changing in their spinal cords or in their neural circuitry was always just really fascinating. Anyone who's had an infant has probably recalled seeing them startle. They actually do this sort of startle where they'll jerk all of a sudden if, say, you move their seat the wrong way or, you know, unexpectedly. I never, you know, I didn't, I just couldn't bring myself to like startle them to get it on tape because it just seemed cruel and I wouldn't do this to them. But plus um, also just so much of the role fascinating as a mother is trying to keep them calm, (laughs) not get them excited and upset. So when you were younger, what were your experiences with science and nature? Did you come to it late? Did you have I don't know, a parent that was a biology teacher, or how did you find your way to science? I found my way to science in uh, probably an unusual path. My parents were travel agents. They had started a small business in Boston where I grew up um, after having lived and 
taught, not science, but other subjects abroad for a number of years. What they did for me was to take me traveling all over the world. And I was interested in animals. And so my dad would take me on these tour groups with him. And I think he would design the trips to take me to places that he thought would be impactful for me to see. So we'd go on safari and to the Galapagos Islands and to Rwanda to see gorillas. Not being scientists at all, they were able to expose me to things they knew I cared about and was curious about in very impactful ways. And as a teenager, was able to get a volunteer job at the Museum of Science in Boston. When I was a kid, um, they had a live animal center and a bunch of teenagers would come and clean cages and take care of the animals and- Like what? Hang out. Oh, well, uh, everything from great horned owls, which we'd carry around on our shoulders, and to giant pythons and alligators, oh to porcupines and kinkajous, and yeah, all sorts of all sorts of great animals. Is there an object that is important to you? Do you have any kind of little lucky talisman or a particular tool for your work that you just love and can't do without? I do have a very old. Farmer John, do you know what that is? It's part of a wetsuit. It's not even a full wetsuit. It's like the part that's like overalls that you wear. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh huh. I have my Farmer Johns from when I was actually an undergraduate and doing the first field research that I did and always wear those when I'm in the field. And they're very important to me. They're just like a good pair of jeans. They're worn in. I feel comfortable in the water and um, they always feel like they're the right weight. And yeah, so that's my object that I carry around with me. Is there a type of animal that you'd love to study, but you haven't yet? The animal that part of me wants to study that I haven't studied yet is actually in some ways humans. And not just like human brains and how our brain works in a, in a you know, lab-based sort of context, but I love basketball. I'm a huge basketball fan. And when I watch basketball players moving on the court, and their coordination of getting this, you know, this ball into this small basket so far away and being able to coordinate their movements for such a accuracy or just the incredible athleticism and grace of the movements and jumping and avoiding one another on the court or not, I find just fascinating. So part of me when I watch basketball is always thinking, how could I turn this into a research study to take data on these professionals that are just incredible at what they do. What could we learn about how their brains are working or how they're mechanically controlling their bodies to do these incredible feats? Knowing what you know, I can definitely see how you'd watch the Chicago Bulls with a different eye, trying to figure out what neurons are firing to help the players do what they do. So how else does science affect the way you see things? Your profession requires you to practice the orderly system of the scientific method, for example. How does that discipline affect you? There is the scientific method, and we teach it, and when we come up with ideas we want to test, we follow it. But there's also this part of science that's wonder and joy and just trying stuff <laughs> and seeing what comes of it. And then going back and figuring out what the right experiment is to really test the ideas. So there's this sort of creativity and exploration that then has to be backed up with this sort of logical process of testing your ideas in some you know, rigorous way. You started off with the big organisms, the primates, 
And you've ended up in a place where you're studying the fins of very tiny fish. Does studying things at that micro scale diminish or increase your sense of wonder of the natural world? These three millimeter long larval fish allow us to understand the brain in ways that we couldn't in these big animals. It absolutely increases wonder. It absolutely gets us deeper into a new place of understanding. Ultimately, we can take that knowledge back out to large organisms working in complex environments. Sitting in a room, dark room, with a microscope and a tiny fish watching its brain think is, to me, just stunning. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. It was a fun conversation. This is Jill Riddell. And I hope this conversation with Melina Hale inspires you to better appreciate all the complicated work your brain is doing. Give yourself a little pat on the head and tell it thank you. Next week, we'll be talking with scientist Jeline LaMontagne. She's a population ecologist, and we'll be talking with Jeline about her studies of white spruce and what it's like to work in the big wilds of the North Woods. This pine martin's up this tree, not very far, like maybe... 12 feet up the tree and it's staring at me and I'm staring at it and I'm thinking I might be the first human that this pine marten has ever seen. Until then, enjoy the way you move through the world. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce the story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find The Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find images from Alina's lab and a video of the fish brains lighting up. There's also a drawing of Molina by the artist, Rose Curley. The Shape of the World's producer is Ari Mejia. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Molina Hale, to Zebrafish, and to the ever-amazing University of Chicago. Mm-hmm.